qualified person to understand a dream is the dreamer, which brings us to you. What was wrong with us in the 70s? <laughs> Every, everything was wrong. And so, so right. I don't even know. All right. First of all, I'm Maddie Blake. And this is, of course, Anthony Arkin with me. Say hi, Anthony. Hello. We have a major, major announcement that a podcast like this, a new podcast, would die to make, especially one that is film themed. That is my big tease because we're about to make that announcement soon. Uh, but first, I just want to say hi, tell you what we're doing, set the table. The film we'll be talking about tonight is The Season of the Witch. It's the Romero version, 1972. Two, thank you, Tony. 1972, not the Nicolas Cage Season of the Witch. No, which we should do, too. We should definitely do that one, too. <laughs> That's horror in its own way. Um, and it's this is the final of our Witch trilogy. I have a lot to say about this film, Tony. I can't wait. I literally can't wait. This is the one that I have been dying to hear what you say about it. This is the one for me. I got to say, because we say that every week, like, oh my gosh, I've got thoughts on this. But this one, I'm truly like, oh, well, we'll get to that. This might be the most perplexing call. No, this is the most perplexing call we've had yet for me. Interesting. I love, I love to hear that. So here's what we're going to do, dear listener. Uh, we are going to, now that we are a few episodes in, kind of finding our groove here, talk paranormal, take a break, talk movie. We're going to add benchmarks and fun things as we go. Um, I actually had this idea, Tony. You know I'm an idea guy. Okay. I had an idea last week or the week before. You used a film term. You said it was all shot ah, blank. I can't remember the term you used, but that's my point, actually. You used a fancy term film term and i thought it would be fun to have like a tony term uh, a film education where each week you you teach us something about that comes generically from that film you legitimately just want everybody to hate me <laughs> that's what you're doing that's what you'd want that's would be the end result of this no I, I if that's something people would want i i i guess i could consider it but doesn't that just sound so i just i sometimes i just can't believe i would even say a word on this show that you would stop to consider and make a segment out of shame on me well put it this way if i don't know it i would venture to guess you know not that i'm anything but i have been working in the industry for 25 years if i'm not sure what the term means it might beg the question i should say well, what does that mean again because i bet a proportion of our listenership wouldn't know it either what was the word you remember i can't remember it was it was all shot like Oh, it's on the tip of my brain. I'll never think of it. Oh, anamorphic. Yes. Okay. Holy moly. How did you do that? Uh, Because you just, because that's how you would phrase, like if you were asking about that, that's kind of how you'd phrase it. So I just, eh, it was on the tip of my tongue. I've also been thinking about it lately too, because uh, I've been researching anamorphic lenses for a little while uh, to maybe do some shooting with one day. And um. So are you asking me now what that means or are you uh, or are you wanting to me to describe that later in another episode after you've written a little segment about it? Let me hit the button of the imaging that I pre-produced here. And now it's time for Tony's si tr cinema term of the day. <laughs> the term of the day is anamorphic, uh, anamorphic. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm not a scientist. Again, people. But anamorphic re refers to a type of lens that was developed um, that would give a very, very wide screen presentation of a movie that you'd get a very cinema, like cinema scope, you know, wide. And it was, I think, the first technology to do that. And basically what those lenses do is they squeeze the 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 image, the frame uh, through the lens to fit onto a square 35 millimeter piece of film. And then the projector on the other end, when they project the movie, unsqueezes it and it goes widescreen. And it, um, it's a, the lenses are very expensive and they were, I forget when they were developed, probably after the war, but they were in use to combat television. 
movie studios wanted people to go to the theaters because everybody was home watching TV. And so anamorphic lenses were kind of really pushed at that time to give this widescreen presentations that you couldn't see at home. Um, and they have specific looks to them. A lot of the great movies that you love from the seventies and the, and the sixties uh, were clearly shot with anamorphic lenses, like close encounters and stuff. And it does things like give you those lens flares and um, really signature kind of looks to stuff. And, and um, they're beautiful. They're beautiful lenses and they, and they shoot really beautiful stuff. It's hard to describe if anybody saw a, a frame of anamorphic next to a regular 35 or a regular lens, you'd see the difference pretty quickly. Hmm. What a jerk you are. I can, I hate you now. I, I, I <laughs> never do that to me again, man. It's so unfair. I just sound like such a, I'm, I am a film nerd, but that is just. <laughs> no, I, just the opposite. I love um, See, I'm exhilarated. I love that. I think that's, I, you know, I'm a big, uh, Took me a long time to get like that, actually, because I was kind of Mister, especially because I learned on the job. I did a lot of, I did a lot of, um, yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it, and then like try to learn it, you know. <laughs> yes, we all do that. Yeah, it took me a long time to mature to go like I don't know what that is, <laughs> you know. And I love that I just learned that. I've heard it used before, and when we were in the episode, you said it, and I made the note to say something, but I didn't want to interrupt you, and then I forgot to go back to it. So I love that. If any time. You you say something I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask. You know, film like nobody's business, man. I have words like that too. I was meaning to ask you, for instance, this po podcast. What did, what does that word mean? It's when two people get together and uh, fall in love. Mm. All right. I think we are podcasting right now. Moving on. Um. <clears throat> okay. So what we're gonna do is we're going to, as I alluded to earlier. One thing that we've decided is very important for you to become more involved with the show is to tell you ahead of time what films and shows, what paranormal things we're going to watch. So you can watch along with us. You can prepare, if you will. Or if you've already seen the film uh, or show, you can think about it, gather your thoughts and anticipation for that episode coming up. So to that end, in fact, Tony, I got a friend uh, email me. Um, text me Jeff Baumgartner, who's a television producer. And he was listening to the show and Jeff's like, boy, uh, I totally would have watched it. You know, give me the assignment. I'll watch it, you know? And, and he's a producer. So he was kind of thinking in those terms uh, of an audience member. And we knew we wanted to do that anyway, but we're all that's a long winded way of saying that uh, we have the next two films queued up. So here's what we're going to do. Next week is Christmas week. So we're going to do a special Christmas edition of Rated P for Paranormal, and we're going to do a big, fat, ribbon bow present for you, podcast form. We're going to do the classic Gremlins, which will introduce the topics of Gremlins. Uh, that kind of trends into cryptid territory. So Gremlins will be our Christmas treat next week for you on Christmas week. And the week after that, your homework assignment is to check out, if you haven't already, a new Netflix series. This will be our first paranormal-themed TV show, if you will. Uh, Tony, tell us about that. Uh, this is going to be a show called Evil, or it is a show called Evil, and we're going to watch it. Uh, it's from 2019, so it's pretty new. Um, there's only one season of it, so it's bingeable. We'll get through as much of this as we can. I, I full disclosure have already started watching it, but only a couple episodes. And uh, I look forward to uh, to diving in. Um, it's it's really cool. It stars um, Katja Herbers, uh, Mike Coulter, and Asif Manvi, and many other people. So there's it's a good cast, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Okay, so um, that's our that's not even our big announcement. Our big announcement is coming up in like five seconds, but. There's your assignment. You've got, you know, plenty of time. If you only get the chance to watch the pilot, then do that. Um, again, the show is evil. It's Netflix. It's right there for you. Paranormal themed, a Catholic priest in training, uh, partners with a forensic psychologist to investigate miracles and demonic possessions in the supernatural drama. That sounds really fun. I can't wait, Tony, for that. Yeah, it's a good pick, I think. So we're going gremlins, then evil. So you've got your homework assignment. Get watching, get viewing. 
And we want to hear from you. Please, you know, message us on our social media at Rated Paranormal. We want to hear from you on Facebook if you think we're wrong, if you think we're right. Um, and no film is off limits if you want to suggest films to us. I had a text, uh, Anthony, from a friend who's listening to the podcast. He wanted us to do, this was from Buck. He wants us to do the new Cronenberg film. Um, stand by. Possessor Uncut. Thank you. That's Cronenberg's. Well, it is a Cronenberg film. Uh, Cronenberg, David Cronenberg's son is a very talented filmmaker as well. And that's his new film. Oh, it's his son. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Who's made, who's made other, other really good movies. Um, but this is called Possessor Uncut from everything I've heard. It's supposed to be pretty disturbing. I can't wait. I can't wait to see it. All right. So see, and, and so someone suggested us a film and it's going right on the list. So we want to hear from you. Yeah, please let us, uh, we want this to be an interactive podcast. Don't be afraid to reach out to us. If you again, agree or disagree with anything we said or have an idea for a film, let's hear from you. But our big announcement uh, here, I did a little imaging work for this too. Here, let me press the button. Time for the rated P for paranormal big announcement. You went all out. Yeah. Well, you know, it's all about effort with these things, Tony. Um, our very own Anthony Arkin, my co-host, my partner in this thing, got some great, great news yesterday. Um, just tell us your news. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised to say and delighted to say that a, f uh, a short film that I helped to make I'm in and I edited and uh, and I made with my dear friends Jacob A. Ware and Trish Harnato, Um got into the Sundance Film Festival. We, we've known for a little while, but weren't able to say anything and they just made it public. And um, yeah, we're really over the moon and we're really surprised. Um, so yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for the shout out. Now Sundance, haven't heard of it. Is that a good one? It's a little festival in the, in the, the West, Utah, Montana, Utah, I think. Yeah. Okay. This is so exciting. I mean, this is so, Okay. I have a couple things to say about it. Number one is if you listen to this podcast because you're into the paranormal and you're not into the film world, getting a film that you're involved with in any way to screen at Sundance is like a huge deal. It's it's such an impossible, uh, astronomically, statistically impossible goal in a way to submit something to Sundance and have it selected. I mean, I think this is just so exciting for you guys and I'm thrilled. I love Jacob. I love Trish. You know, you and Trish and Jacob formed this this company, basically, where you've been doing shorts for a very long time called Steel Drum in Space, correct? That's right. Yeah. And I've been a fan of those things. I thought they should have exploded on the internet, you know, uh, even more than they did. And uh, boy, it's such a lesson in, you know, just finding your your people, as Jacob said in one of his tweets, I think, you know, find your people and don't stop and just keep creating and good things will happen. This is a victory. This is a Rocky like victory for awesome people and super talented people. And I am thrilled for you guys. Um, thank you so much, man. That really means a lot. Honestly, like this has been a huge surprise. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I mean, it's just, it all, it all really Sundance does really seem like an unattainable thing. I've been sending my own films in for years. I mean, for 20 years and haven't even made it close. Um, and I get it. I get it. The amount of films that they have to go through every year and the competition is it's as fierce as it gets. And, um, and so th this was a big surprise. We didn't have like, you know, we didn't use channels or have in, you know, inside contacts. This was really like, an example of the system kind of like working. They just liked the movie. I, and I was, I, I couldn't be more, more thrilled. We say short film. How long is this one? It's, it's like nine and a half minutes long. And what's it called? It's called, you wouldn't understand. Why do you think it got selected as opposed to, cause you guys did some really funny, great stuff. Well, I mean, I'll be totally honest. I think why it got picked is because you, I think uh, it, it feels like it was made by a group of friends without any ego. And that's what it was. We really had a, a great time and we didn't have, you know, when we work together, we, we never really kind of think of it as industry stuff or, you know, what, you know, who's going to like it or who, how we can angle or what we, we never tailor what we make to that kind of thinking. So 
I think it just feels like it's just kind of guileless. Like, no, it's, it is what it is. We didn't, we just made it to be a funny thing to do on a weekend and, and it just worked. And sometimes, you know, the right story and the right day of shooting and the right DP and the right stuff just all comes together. And, and, and we had a really funny idea and, um, and it is, it is, you know, kind of paranormal themed too. So. Wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the thing isn't available to see right now, but when it went after the festival and it, it, it either gets a release or we can release it or whatever, I, I could talk more about what it is. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's just a blast. You know, we just had fun making it and, um, and this is a big surprise. So, uh, you know, and, but it's, it's well-earned, you know, Trish who directed it and conceived of it with, uh, Jacob is, is, I mean, they're both super talented and she is one of the best writers like right now in anywhere in the country as far as i'm concerned she's just amazing playwright and uh, she's gonna have a big year i think i remember jacob did these uh your co-star in this short film which is now selected for sundance film festival um he did these series of like instructional videos and i used to watch them on the train ride in new york city like i would just watch them 20 times in a row they were like a minute long and i would just hit replay replay and one of them was golf lessons and and I was laughing so hard on the train to myself, like the, some stockbroker next to me is like going, like, give me this dirty look. Like, dude, I was like crying. I was convulsing because it's the most ridiculous. I can't even describe it. It wouldn't work. But uh, he's giving a, a pencil, giving a golf lesson. And it's like just horrible. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing. And Jacob is truly hysterical. And, uh, you know, we've worked together for a long time. So it's like, he, I just, uh, I love, I love working with him. He's, uh, he's always, he always makes it fun. <laughs> well, again, Tony, congratulations. And if you'd like to send your congratulations to Tony on social media, we are at Rated Paranormal. You can check out our page on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and just tell him congratulations. It's a huge deal. And I can't wait to watch you uh, win the Academy Award for Best Short Film. Um, I uh, That's weird even to hear anybody say that. But thank you so much. That's very, very sweet of you to say. Thank you. I put it out there. All right. So this is the third film in our witch trilogy. And before we get to the film, as always, we want to talk a little bit about the paranormal aspects it depicts. And that, of course, again, for the third week in a row is witchcraft, the dark arts, if you will. Um, and some weird stuff happened around this, Tony, this past week. Um, I happened to be reading. So, OK, two things happened. I heard from someone who wishes to remain anonymous. And they were, uh, I can't even say that. They know, um, how do I say it? This person uh, is connected to, you know, they would consider themselves a witch, put it that way. And they were just simply saying, here is some of the things that you didn't talk about. And one of the things that this person brought up was spells, particularly like spell books. And that aspect of witchcraft, that would be to use the power of witchcraft to make someone do something you want them to do or to make them fall in love or to suffer pain, uh, to curse them or even to bless them. But uh, we, we never mentioned that aspect of, you know, spell books and like kind of instructions, uh, like how a witch does what they do. And then I watched this movie, uh, The Season of the Witch by Romero, and it actually has moments that seem to be almost kind of an instructional on how to be a witch, how they, you know, conduct spells and use a spell book to do what they do, the language they use, things like that. And at the same time, when all this happened, I was doing some research for my Oak Island job, which when I'm not filming, I'm constantly reading books that'll just make me better at my job. You know, I read books about the Knights Templar. Um, and I was reading a book about sacred manuscripts. And be because on the show, The Curse of Oak Island, one of the th theories is that it is some sort of secret manuscript, secret knowledge, um, something like that buried on Oak Island. Uh, and this team, the search team on the show has actually found parchment paper that has been dated to the Middle Ages, including what one expert thought was the spine of a very, very valuable book, the leather book binding of something that would have been very valuable. 
And so I was reading about this thing called the Voynich Manuscript. I, I have heard the term. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's this. It's so funny. So I'm I'm reading about this Voynich Manuscript because some people thought that it might be connected to this Rosicrucian secret knowledge, uh, even tied to the fact that Sir Francis Bacon might have been the author of the William Shakespeare works, which is one of the big theories on Oak Island, which seems laughable until you start pulling up man- ancient manuscript pieces from 180 feet underground, you know? Um, so I'm reading about this Voynich manuscript. So what it is, is it's a manuscript that was found by a book collector by that name, Voynich. And it is in some undecipherable language. It has been dated uh, to the Middle Ages, uh, 15th century. They've carbon dated it. And nobody can break the code. It's a language that they've put the best scientific World War I and World War II decipherers, code breakers, and they cannot break this thing. Uh, it appears to have no mistakes in it, and it's, va- it's big. And it's got these odd drawings and this strange, unidentifiable language. When, when you say no mistakes in it, what do, you, what do you mean? So what it means is there's no visible retouching. It, it, it was like it was one take, if you will. You know, it could be explained by saying, well, it's a, it's a hoax. It's a fake language. So you just keep writing. But it seems to be an incredible, incredibly detailed and specific set of instructions of some kind. There are there's there's large sections about herbs and uh, there's na- naked women. Um, there's there seems to be like references to alchemy, hand drawn pictures of, of these. So there's pictures in it, too. Are are there butt trumpets? You know what's funny? You say that there there are there. Okay, so like one of the pictures is like these naked women in a green vat with this mechanical something or other coming out of it, like a drain system with this weird language, like explaining instructions or something. And it does look a little like Monty Python or like the Beatles, you know, like Yellow Submarine art. Uh, but this is this is definitely from the Middle Ages or earlier. It seems to be maybe pharmaceutical. But there does seem to be some sort of mystical instruction to it. And, oh, there's the cat again. There he goes again. As soon as we start talking about witchcraft, my God. (sighs) Oh, my God. (laughs) No! I can't even begin to tell you how scary that was when he started doing it. Dude, like, so we've done what, uh, five or six of these, I guess? And it's never happened until we start talking about witches. That is kind of weird. Um, so anyway, this, I'm, I'm being long-winded, but the Voynich manuscript has been claimed by many people in terms of nobody can figure out what the hell this thing is, but people have claimed it like it's the Baconian hidden secret of Shakespeare, or it's this, or it's that. It's It's a medieval medicine book on how to heal with herbs and witches. They say this is the, exactly like a spell book. I just thought that was fascinating. So as, as I'm reading about this document in preparation for my Oak Island book, I get a note from a person who's an expert on this stuff, if you will, and says, hey, you forgot to mention spell books and uh, potions and, and, you know, making people do things for you. And I'm going like, oh, that was kind of eerie timing, you know? Right. Well, like you go into you go into a witchcraft store like in Salem that we talked about last week, and there's like potions and tinctures. I love that word tincture, um, potions and and herbs and things, and you mix them together and you say the thing and and you try to affect results. That's witchcraft. Now that could be blessings, protection for my family, or it could be, you know, the opposite of that. Well, yes, obviously. And I mean, I, I'm old enough to have been through the new age craze and in, in, even in California in the 80s and stuff. And the, I saw, you know, kinds, you know, I mean, people with crystals and stuff. I met people who claimed to have been witches or a black magician or whatever. I, 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 I don't know. I guess I had at the time, <clears throat> I, I, I just didn't know what to, to make of it. Didn't know serious who wasn't. Um, but I, I think it's vis-a-vis this movie. It's certainly the, the new age seems to have as much of 
it seems to be as much about the new age craze as it does witchcraft. And I don't know if I guess witchcraft was a part of that. People were into all kinds of stuff like we were talking about starting in the, in the, in the sixties, but it goes back every, every, I think almost every generation has a kind of a new renewed interest in a different form of this kind of thing. Um, and it's certainly it's cyclical. I think um, what I've read anyway, is that it really does uh, people get re-enthusiastic about the occult and, and studying that stuff when times are tough, when the economy is really down, when there's political upheaval, um, cultures definitely do start to um, look into other areas for answers when things get very unsure in their regular real life. So, um, so it's a thing. It really does happen. Um, and I, I'm fast. I'd be fascinated to learn more about it. I'm not particularly into, uh, you know, sp- you know, casting spells. Uh, I cast aspersions. That's my, that's what I. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like, so when I, you know, as a, as a, as a Christian, I'll say prayers of protection for my family to, you know, saints. There's a famous St. Michael, the archangel prayer in which you are looking for spiritual protection, um, protect us, you know, protect us against the wickedness of sayers of the devil, blah, blah, blah. And, and I'm thinking, you know, it's funny, like these spells, if you, if you look into them, a lot of them are looking for the exact same type of thing, except drawing on, uh, what they believe to be naturally occurring things here that we can harness powers that we can harness simply by conjuring up materials and incantations, materials that exist in this world and incant. I guess, I guess that would be the only difference in a way. Um, you know, I believe I'm praying to pure spirit. And I, I think from what I understand from this three weeks reading about this stuff is they believe in conjuring spirit. Yes, but they are using very tangible, uh, um, earthly things to conjure this energy, if you will. Right. Does that make sense? Right. I, I, from my understanding, they, they're talking to, uh, I guess, nature spirit is from what I've heard it described as, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, that's all I can, that's certainly all I can speak to. I mean, I, I feel like I know plenty about witchcraft, but I only know about it because of movies. Like that's my, that's, you know, I've seen a lot of movies about witches and, and, and spells and horror movies and stuff. So I've, I've, I know what the rules are in movies, but I couldn't tell you what the real thing is without making it up. And that's why this is actually the perfect movie to end our trilogy with, because it's the most practical, grounded, realistic look, probably, at what being a modern day witch is um, in terms of just that part of it, the witchcraft part of it, the practicing of it. We don't know a lot about this stuff. We know from TV and film. We know from the Wicked Witch of the West, you know, uh, Wizard of Oz, which is not witchcraft as those who practice it would would claim you know sure but i mean also i mean to, and to, just to explain the kind of respect i want to have for it is like this is all very ancient stuff and it's a real it's a real religion to people i i guess a religion you might be able to call it i don't even know but it's a real thing in in a lot of people's lives so unlike i don't know i don't i don't i'm not i'm not worried if we're talking about bigfoot for instance i'm not worried about alienating anybody from what i said like if whatever i say about bigfoot doesn't matter <laughs> you know i mean maybe some interested people might think that i'm being close-minded that's fine but we're talking about an actual like this is this is real people's lives we're talking about and their beliefs and their system so i just that's the distinction i'm making with it you know and um uh and it isn't even out of like superstition that i'm being careful i'm just like i just feel like it's a real thing would like to know more about it before I, before I said any more. Well, that's perfect. Cause I'm literally the opposite. I don't want to offend the Bigfoot community and I could care less if I offend any witches. <laughs> right. Well, you know, where the, you know, where you're, where you're making the big money. Cause Bigfoot is it's all big. Money. Uh, all right. Uh, we're going to take a quick little break. And when we come <laughs> back, Oh, one thing I want to do, Tony, real quick before we go, uh, take a break and get into the film season of the witch by George Romero. Since we're talking about that, it just occurred to me, how do we know about witches? It's from film and television, right? you got to pick one best witch of all time as portrayed in TV or film. You're not going to give me a choice of five? I have, to, I have to just pick one? All right. Okay. Here we go. We'll do, uh, let's see. Uh, okay. We'll go 
the witches from Wicked, number one. We'll go Samantha or Bewitched. We'll go, uh, who's a little girl from, um, oh, oh, uh, Harry Potter. Hermo, her, how do you say her name? Hermo? Hermi- Hermione. Hermione as number three. <laughs> we'll go Sabrina the Teenage Witch four. And we'll go uh, five, uh, the Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz. It's definitely Wicked Witch of the West for me on that on that list. Easily, easily. The whole thing, the look, the the woman playing it. That woman is a genius. She's incredible in that movie. She, I, she, you know, it's great. Still terrifying. It is literally terrifying. Like when, it, it, even as an adult, and I see that movie on every year around Thanksgiving time. I'm like, God, she's scary. You know. Okay. Full disclosure. I had to look it up, but it's Margaret Hamilton, um, played the Wicked Witch of the West. Absolutely great, great. Yeah, it's so good. Um, from all reports, she was a total sweetheart, like the opposite of that character. You know, more like uh, Dorothy's mother in real life than the witch. I agree with you, Anthony, that it's her. She's the goat. Uh, but I'm going to go with a sentimental pick. I'm going to go with Samantha Stevens, Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitched. Totally second choice for me. Well, I remember growing up and my sister loved that show and Dr. Bombay and uh, the two Darrens and... Boy, she was so beautiful and and just funny and quirky. She was great. Season of the Witch, when we return. Did you know you can support this podcast in more ways than just sharing, rating, and reviewing? Just go to our homepage, anchor.fm slash ratedparanormal, and click to donate. I mean, we are starving artists, after all. Yeah, that's just because you can't cook. Hashtag truth. Hook us up, and we'll keep hooking you up with great content. Anchor.fm slash ratedparanormal. A neglected, unhappy suburban housewife gets mixed up in some witchcraft and there are untold consequences. This is George Romero and his film, The Season of the Witch. Tony, this film, I don't even know where to begin. So I always ask you a rhetorical question, a somewhat rhetorical question to get these things started. To stall for time. <laughs> I'm going to break rank here and just tell you, I'm just going to come out with it. I'm going to tell you that I am truly ambivalent on this film, I remember that, I think it was in the movie Girl Interrupted, uh, the, the uh, Angelina Jolie. No, is that Girl Interrupted with Angelina Jolie? And um, Why are you asking me that? Because you obviously own it and watch it every Wednesday. <laughs> uh, hold on, now I'm going to Google that. <laughs> Girl, why are you asking me that? Because I know you like horror movies. Oh, yeah, it is. Okay. For some reason, this scene always stuck out to me. Uh, the Winona Ryder character was using the word ambivalent. And the Angelina Jolie character says, you're using that wrong. She said, what do you mean? She says, everyone says ambivalent, meaning I don't care. She goes, that's not what it means. It means you're torn because you care very much, but in the opposite two directions. Equal parts both ways. Correct. And I, I go, boy, I was using that word wrong myself. I am completely torn by this movie right in half. And I don't know what grade to give it. I thought ambivalent was a small European uh, ambulance. So I, you're ahead of me. Oh, wait. Ambivalent was the fourth witch in, in the Witches of Eastwick. <laughs> ambivalent and Maleficent. What? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what to do with this. So let's talk about the paranormal aspects of it first. And then we'll get into the film itself as a film on its own merits. Paranormally, I think this might be our strongest film, believe it or not. Because out of all the films we've done probably since the first communion, um, I think this might be the most real, gritty depiction on film of a quote-unquote paranormal process. That is, someone interested in something like witchcraft and partaking in it and then trying to make spells and things like that. I mean, he basically, it, it almost becomes a documentary at times uh, where, where you're going with her on this journey. You're reading spells. You're looking at the equipment used. 
you're hearing her read these things. You're seeing how a witch would really practically do it. And then it's up to you as the viewer to determine, were these spells really working or, or is this just things that would have happened anyway? He leaves you that there's things that could have been supernatural and, or it could be just the normal course of events of life. And she's kind of guiding it based on signs and things like that. Um, so I think it's really grounded in reality in that way. So paranormally, it really worked for me. I'm like, wow, this is this taught me everything that I didn't know on our first two witch explorations trying to read up about it. I'm like, wow, I should just watch this movie. I would have known so much more about witchcraft. I agree completely on that. I I, I think that it, it is the most realistic depiction of of this process that that I could probably mention or that uh, we've certainly seen so far. I mean, it seems like this is how it would go down. If somebody got interested in in actual witchcraft, uh, the kind that you could practice, you know, today or tomorrow by walking into a store and buying some stuff and trying out witchcraft, um, it, it takes it a little further than that in the sense that the main character, um, and this is an old movie, but nobody knows it, so I still don't want to spoil stuff. You know what I mean? Like... It's an underdog movie for me. That's kind of where I feel about it. So I want to fight for some of the things that probably you you have a question about. But I do agree that that this is a very interesting and fair and clear depiction of what it might be like to to get interested in this kind of stuff and then get kind of consumed by it. It's super real. That scene you just described is my favorite scene in the film. She goes into a witchcraft store. She's trying to, and there's all kinds of subtext in this movie about feminism and taking her power back. She's a desperate housewife, if you will, on the suburbs of Pennsylvania. Her husband's a complete jerk, um, which I found actually comedically effective. I don't know if he meant it to be, but, you know, it's like, you got to kick some ass, he keeps saying. I don't know what to do. I'll tell you how to handle it. You kick some ass, Emma. You kick some ass. Um, he's almost comically bad, evil. And she's taking her power back and she kind of, she goes to the store and, you know, season the witch is playing by Donovan, that song. And she's checking out the witchcraft stuff, the gear that's going to be needed. And it's a really cool scene. It's kind of like ahead of its time, almost like a mu music video. Well, yeah. And in the middle of that scene, you've got a close up of, of her MasterCard slapping down on the desk of of the of the, like by the cashier register. Now, hold on. And it's this this you sent me this picture of you're talking about the Mastercard the old the 70s era Mastercard the old credit card that she she pays for the witch stuff with is an old master is a Mastercard from the 70s. Let me see. You sent this to me in an email and you said check this out. Let me see. You said the name on it? It says say George Romero. Yes, it does. It's George Romero's MasterCard. No way. That's so cool. Which is probably the MasterCard he used to pay for this movie. No doubt. Well, that's funny. That that MasterCard stuck out to me because it was so 70s. You know, I was like, oh, my God, that's what it used to look like. It's it's a to me, it was a really key shot in the movie. I mean, I, I feel like I was I was on the wavelength of what he was trying to of what Romero was trying to say and do here. And it should be, we should say that he he wrote, directed, and shot and edited this movie himself. Um, and that's probably one of the things that makes some of it great and some of the things that make it not so great at the same time. But that MasterCard shot to me is such an example of him never, ever not being socially conscious and talking about social issues. I just think the movie is so it's so smart philosophically. Like he's such a smart guy and he has so many interesting ways of talking about culture the same way that he did with night of the living dead and dawn of the dead. And I think maybe my favorite of all of them is day of the dead, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, we'll do, we'll do that trilogy at some point. Sure. And you could, we could talk about night of the living dead for a whole season as far as I'm concerned, but that movie is, um, is very similar to this and that's it's so full of ideas and amazing things that you didn't really like brave ideas that you didn't see a lot of people talking about uh i think this movie is really critical of the new age stuff and i think it's really critical of 
of her choices or at least the way in which she goes about witchcraft. But I think it also is smart enough to have to understand why she's doing it. And it also has a lot of commentary about the, the times and the, and the culture that, that, that this all grew out of and capitalism and all kind. And I think that shot says so much about, no, I'm, I'm really, I'm not really talking about, I'm not making a horror movie. I'm not making a, I'm not, I'm not making a, a, a you know, a, a, a cash grab grindhouse horror movie just to make a buck. I, he really has stuff on his mind. He really does. I think. And I think he always did as a filmmaker. I, I, I I've my appreciation for him really has grown a lot over the years. Um, and that smartness I see throughout, I have so many sequences and scenes in this movie that I think are just, ex just amazing, just uh, exemplary. And, and, and then there's, there's the fact that it is, it is as homemade as, <laughs> as it gets kind of, and that's either that either throws people off or it doesn't, you know, I love movies like that. I love films that are 16 millimeter made by a couple of people in the middle of nowhere in the sixties. I just, I'm fascinated to see what they made, you know, what was on their minds and, and, um, considering the budget constraints and the fact that he was doing everything on that set all the whole time, I, I, just so many great ideas that I, I just went on the ride, you know, totally hear you. And there's, you know, it's funny. You, you said there's a lot in his mind. Clearly th th this is like a movie about, it's a feminist movie. I think you could take it that way. I think it says a lot about the American dream, like what we're, what a woman in modern American society expects or what she's told she should expect, I guess might be a better way to say it. Yeah. All right. And um, breaking out of those chains, if you will, it happened at a time, you know, it's funny. I think in the, the first episode of this podcast, I remember mentioning seventies films being all into psychotherapy, you know, and this is definitely one of them. There's, 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 yeah, there's a psychotherapist in there. Yeah. yeah smoking a pipe, you know? Yeah. And the language is, you know, like there's a lot of like, Hey man, she's on a bad trip. I'm not trying to turn you off, man. Like, you know, using all that. Yeah. But what, see, there's, a, I don't mean to interrupt, but the shrink says something that's so important though. Like it's a cliche, but then he says this line, he says, um, the least qualified person to understand a dream is the dreamer, which is, I think one of the more ridiculous negative things I've ever heard that that is literally the worst thing, for instance, that, that it, it's the same thing that the church is doing for her or that ultimately witchcraft does for her is that it says, you're not in control. We know what's wrong with you. You don't get to make decisions for yourself. And I think the movie's really about, her turning to all these different things. Um, I mean, she doesn't really, you don't see her trying to turn to religion, but I guess by turning to witchcraft, she's kind of made that choice. You see her deny that. And then, but she's failed by all of it. And I think that's, it's really smart and sad. And, and, um, you know, it makes it complicated because she's then not really a hero, but she's an ant. She's a feminine, she's a feminist anti-hero. I feel like, and that's from, from a movie in 1972 directed by a guy. I think that's an incredibly notable, uh, movie there, you know? Um, and one that shouldn't be dismissed just because I think the main complaints about it are that it is kind of sloppily made sometimes. And then it feels very kind of janky and, and like a, like a very much a B movie at times. Yeah, no doubt. There's a lot going on in the world at that time that he clearly wanted to talk about. You know, I remember right around that time, like, well, I was I was born in the, you know, 71. Um, I remember probably like 74 or five. My mother had like an ERA pin in her, you know, in her cabinets. Like it was the Equal Rights Amendment. Women's movement was starting to come up. So that was the result of the grassroots feeling probably happening in 71, 72. So he clearly wanted to, this movie's not just a, a like you said, a B spooky movie. He had a lot to say, as, as you said so well. I think he had literally a lot to say about society and the culture at the time. And the, and it was the easiest thing to get funded was it was a movie that included the supernatural because that's what he, he'd already made night of the living dead. 
and people were expecting to see something kind of in the horror genre. But you know what the, the, the original title for this was? And it, I think it was actually released in one version like uh, titled this. It was, it was called Jack's Wife. Jack's Wife and then Hungry Wives. Yeah. Which when you watch it on Amazon, and by the way, it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's available a couple places. You can find it. Uh, but when you watch it on Amazon, Tony, it actually, the opening credits introduce it as Hungry Wives which is a tragedy in what the industry can do to filmmakers. It's a cautionary tale. He makes this movie, and as we've laid out, he wants to deal with some really touchy issues. And they go, this thing, no one's going to care about this. Let's make it a softcore porn and call it Hungry Wives. And they totally advertised it. Like I think with a tagline was on the poster, I saw it was like something like, a, there's nothing in the kitchen, but there's hot in the bedroom or something like that. I swear <laughs> to God, they try to make it like a, they try to release it like a softcore porn about <laughs> no. Hungry Wives, which is yeah. not, it's, the, it's literally the opposite of what he wanted to make. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, and I think Season of the Witch is a, is a decent compromise, but I think even that was because if, if I said, you got to go see this movie called Jack's Wife. And you saw the season of The Witch. I think it would be a lot more profound experience than if you went to a movie called Season of the Witch and saw this. Interesting. Yeah, it's gonna. It's a huge curveball, right? You're expecting like Jack's wife. Like what? Let me just find that poster because it's actually it's it's hilarious and tragic. Here it is. Hungry Wives was what the studio or I guess executives did to this movie. Uh, the tagline is caviar in the kitchen. Nothing in the bedroom. Oh, no. Yep. And the poster is like these sultry, uh, sexy women in lingerie. And it's like, that is not this movie at all. This movie is about a woman who is, quite frankly, abused by her husband physically uh, and, you know, kept at bay. She feels like the world is passing her by. She's got no role. Her daughter's grown and doesn't need her anymore. She is lost. And she goes out into the world, meets a witch, and says, I'm going to be a freaking witch and, and make things happen for myself. So, I mean, to, to call this movie, uh, you know, to try to make this movie the opposite of what he wanted. I mean, he must've been, I don't know how he reacted to it, but I, I wouldn't have been pleased. Hungry wives. My evening is free on a diet of men. You know, you're not bad in the sack, Mrs. Robinson. Not bad yourself. Everything women could want out of marriage. Except the one thing they crave most. They are all hungry wives with an appetite for diversion. Uh, you know, he, from all accounts, is an incredibly good-natured person and, and pretty humble. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure he was disappointed that the movie didn't do better and didn't get released, the, at least titled the way he wanted it to. I think it's his cut, um, as far as I know. But, uh, but... I I think that um I think that he really wanted to make something great. I read an interesting quote of his. He said uh, I read this a couple places, but apparently he he said that this is the only movie he made that he wishes he could remake. That makes a lot of sense to me because that's actually a great tee up for my criticisms <laughs> or my the reason I'm ambivalent about it is because I think he did have a lot to say. Does the fact that he did everything himself and had no budget and all that, does that forgive it its sins, if you will? Or do you just say, well, at a certain point, you put it out, you made it, <laughs> you know, you have a responsibility to clean up some of that stuff. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I just, oh, so much of it doesn't work for me. So everything about it that deals with witchcraft and uh, a lot of the major themes are so realistic and so well done. On the paranormal score, it just, it hits a home run. And, and then as a film, I feel like it doesn't. The, the, the performances are way too uneven. The editing, despite some brilliant moments of Romero talent, you're like, oh, wow, that was a cool shot. There's also really jarring moments. The, I thought the score was, oh, I hate to say, uh, I don't want to say anything mean. The score took me out of it at times, most of the time. Um, the plot lines, the dialogue, it's so of its time, which you could say, awesome, it's a time period piece, like it captures that time and place. Okay, that's one argument. But for me, I'm not sure that was the intent, put it that way. 
So a lot of the references, a lot of the, the that language of the time, that that psycho babble, the you know, I'm not trying to trip you out, man. You know, and the the performances are so wildly uneven. That I'm again, I just don't know where to rate this movie. You, so your complaints with it are mostly technical. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, I mean, I think that's really fair. I, 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 you know, I have, I have so much healthy terror of of making low budget movies after having made a couple, you know, like I know, I know how, how brutally difficult it is. And maybe I give it a little bit of an easier time because I know what it's like to do all those jobs and to do them all at once blows my mind and to have a movie with this many good things in it. I mean, cause for me, this doesn't just have two good sequences in it. To me, it has several. And that's where I have a problem because I think, yeah, the acting is terribly uneven. Why? Because the the dude made movies in Pittsburgh in 1970 and to have creative control and because he didn't have, no one was financing his stuff. What does that mean? You don't make movies or do you keep going? Now the same performance level is in Night of the Living Dead and everybody loves that movie and they forget about the cheesy parts because it's not cheesy to them. It's just how they could make it. And I feel like it's you got to kind of kind of give these both movies the same kind of treatment and 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 understand like this guy's making indie movies before it's really popular to do so um, and is struggling. His first film, Night of the Living Dead, didn't he didn't even retain rights to that movie. I mean, it's tragic. He didn't make a dime off of it. And then he he and that movie changed cinema, you know, like literally. Absolutely. But I feel like Night of the Living Dead, though, Tony, uh, the things he wanted to say in Night of the Living Dead, it was like mission accomplished about the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement, things like that. It was like mission accomplished. This felt melodramatic, unnecessarily melodramatic and weird. And I got to say, though, the one thing that we haven't talked about yet is what the movie is actually to me about is not about witchcraft. It's about cinema. It's literally about movies. Is this another one of those we've said before? This could be an, I forget what movie was, or like, this could be an allegory for the creative process. Well, I, I didn't take it that far. Maybe it could be, I don't know. But I mean, I was amazed at how many unbelievable references he has in this to, to the graduate and to the shots, the photography in the graduate. And it's even a reference. There are dream sequences in this movie that are some of the best I've ever seen for me ever that are copying moves from, you know, from eight and a half. And then, which then Polanski was using uh, in Rosemary's baby. And then he's kind of taking those two things and mashing them together in these amazing ways with what he's doing with sound. And I, I, you know, there is, there's all that. There's also like how influential I think it probably might've been on the ice storm, which I think is really interesting. I mean, there's costumes that look like they copied them out of this. Um, so there's all, there's all that stuff. I think the dream sequences alone are, are so inventive and so freaky and so brilliantly like done throughout the movie that you don't know when and where you're in or out of them. I think that constitutes actually kind of brilliant editing. So it's this weird mix to me of like absolutely brilliant movie things. And then really, really like poor technical things that went wrong or that they he just couldn't do or actors that just were like from the local dinner theater. And that was the only person who would show up to make this movie. Like, I, you know, all of that considered and the fact that, you know, we're talking about George Romero who literally used to work for Mr. Rogers in Pittsburgh gets to make this art movie. And I guess, you know, I'm such a, I'm such a fan of the whole idea of it of the fact that he's just like to heck with it. I'm going to make a Bergman movie. And he wanted to make this art movie so bad. And I just, I guess I'm just a softie for, for that level of like hitting for the fences and like using, like there's a lot of Ken Russell in this too, like Tommy. And, and yeah, I mean, I, it's just, it's just, it was just crazy. And then the scenes, okay. The scene where her uh, somewhat older friend who's really neurotic uh, is hanging out at that party and gets drunk and then thinks she's been dosed and 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 yeah it's kind of cheesy and square but there's also something really unnerving about it like very carnal knowledge very weird and very like no I'm going to show you this 
You do want it to stop. They lay on that scene so long and her humiliation is so painful. That's really good filmmaking to me. Like really good. That's actually good thinking. Like it makes you, it takes you right to the point of you yourself being well, like just stop doing this, this poor lady, like leave her alone. Um, and she's like, you know, this kind of whatever dinner theater actress, but she actually kind of broke my heart in this thing. She was really great. I thought. And I think like the visuals of the husband in the dream, like snapping the dog collar on her. And then that imagery coming back when she's going through that witch ceremony where they attach a collar to her and then attach her to the altar. There were just all these really, really smart things going on that were in this movie. That's just kind of like this mess that looks like it was made on in a weekend. Um, and I kind of dig that aesthetic. So it wasn't that much a hurdle for me. I guess I just, I just, I just liked what he was on about, you know? Um, but I'll, I'll grant you, there's some weird, there's just some stuff like the guy who plays her lover is just, that character is so funny. Oh, if yeah. Um, and yet I wonder, you know, we're not supposed to really like him or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. No, he's supposed to be terrible. Right. And he is in every way. Um, yeah, you know, you're you're actually convincing me a little bit. Uh, these are things that I, I could almost hear your voice as I was watching it say exactly what you're saying now. And I, and I got what Romero was going for. I wonder if maybe he was trying to do a little too much, if that's part of the problem. Um, I, yeah. For example, like you mentioned Rosemary's Baby and references to other films, like he calls her Mrs. Robinson like five times. It's like, okay, I get it. I get it. We're going for the graduate thing here, which is, you know, and and that puts it in its time so much you know you watch other films that might have been shot at the exact same time and yet you feel like you could watch them in any generation and they're just as timeless you know sure and this would be too because the fact of the matter is the, you know the references to the, the the script references to these things aren't as important as what he's like referencing with his with his shots because he's literally shooting stuff like like you know you'd see in um the graduate and he doesn't have to mention it. It's there. It's like, oh my God, you're dressed like Mrs. Robinson. You're kind of that age. This is there, even some of the way that he'd foreshorten the rooms and have her kind of compressed in there. You know, it was really, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's like brilliant ideas. And he had two lenses and a broken camera and he was just like sweating and he tried to get it done. And I, I don't know. I just love the guy. And I love the fact that he made this movie, but I got you. His talent is evident in the bunch of shots. You're like, oh my God, look at that thing. You know, with the candle and the, and the statue and her mirror. Like, wow, wow, yeah. And how about that great scene where in the dream where, where the guy who sells her the house that she's already living in? Oh, yeah. And it comes in and it's like, you know, you can buy this toothbrush or whatever. It's like, you should sell her stuff. Great writing. And like, that's very, I feel like that's Terry Gilliam before Terry Gilliam. Kind of like, that was like, wow. That's what a dream is. That's such a good depiction of a dream on film. Uh, that weird kind of, yeah, yeah. Like you're buying your own house that you already live in. Fantastic. So if you, if you, if you can get with that sick, that kind of that crazy late sixties, early seventies vibe and it's handmade and it's kind of a grindhouse movie and there's stuff that's lumpy and it's not, it, it's, it, I think it's going to give you a really surprising experience. And, you know, I, I don't know, like, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't know what is going to be offensive or not to women. I don't always know. Yeah. Let's, we have to talk about that just a little bit. I did watch this with, with Amelia and um, she really liked the movie. I, I, she really got a lot out of it and didn't, it didn't upset her. Didn't we, after we talked about it, she didn't seem like it bothered her or she seemed to like really appreciate what it was about. So, um, because it does depict violence against from her husband to her on her. And, uh, you know, does not condone that though. It doesn't, it doesn't because he gets his <laughs> and, and she also, she also takes control of her world. And again, I've said it like five times. She takes her power. She, she, she goes, Oh, all right, this is how it's going to be. Go fuck yourself. I'm going to be a witch and set spells and make things happen for myself which is a very feminist message in 1971. Yeah, it is. And oddly the same message kind of as the witch from last week, because I, I really felt like the end of that movie, he, that they presented 
a situation where you're like, well, what else is this poor woman going to do? Like, where, where is she going to go? She's got to empower herself somehow. She's got to live. And, and she's, all these other doors are closed. What she, what do you expect? And I felt like he, and he didn't let this woman off the hook either because she cord this different, but okay, she's a, she's a modern woman. She has a little money. She's, she could get a divorce. She could change her life, but you know, everybody knows what it feels like when you can't, you don't think you can do that. And she feels trapped and she's mentally kind of disturbed by it, I think. And um, I think it depicts that for cheap, really cheap on the cheap, the kind of movie that would usually just be about like, you'd see a lot of like naked women running around a fire and a, and a, you know, horned mask. And that would be that. No, this is a lot deeper than that. So I, I feel like, uh, to me, it gets clearly it gets a it gets a P for paranormal on the paranormal side, but I I just I want to put it up there because it kind of because I want to fight for it because it's like I don't know if there's going to be a lot of movies like this on the shelf. I'll give him a huge credit goes to him for exactly what you were just talking about, and and I alluded to this earlier, and that is not going the obvious route with the witchcraft angle, he leaves it up to us. Are these things supernatural or not? You know, is she truly using witchcraft to affect her world or is her world going in that direction? And she, she thinks it's happening, you know? Um, and he leaves little clues, by the way, he leaves breadcrumbs that you could look at either one and say, that's the case, which is very slick. Um, you know, for example, um, she says, I set a, I set a spell to her lover. She says, I may, I said a spell that made you come to me. Basically earlier, he had said, look, I'll come by any other time. I'll come by anytime you want. So when he, she says to him, I said a spell, he goes, look, I would have come over anyway is the subtext, right? Um, so you're left to decide, well, was it her? Did, did, did she put him under her spell or is this the normal? And then while that's happening, just in case it doesn't tip the scale enough for you to make your own decision, as she's doing an incantation and he's sleeping and kind of waking up and smirking at her for doing it. Like, look at this bullshit. She's doing the witch bullshit. A cat appears. <laughs> it's another cat and creepily sneaks in the house. A cat we've never seen before. I don't think and goes and perches. It perches itself right up next to the witch equipment. And so I think that was Romero's way of just going like, Oh, decide for yourself. You know? Well, yeah, she also she also seems to have a telekinetic effect on some stuff too in the movie. I mean, it's that, and that's not in a dream, I don't think. But it's subtle. It's subtle, and it's and it could be explained away. And that's what I want to say, regardless of what you think. It's very slick and talented on his part to include those Easter eggs and breadcrumbs where you could look at either one and say. No, it's clearly just real life or no, there's some witchcraft here. But you st you're not going to put it on the shelf. So the question is, oh God, this is so hard. This is like how you were with the Wolf of Snow Hollow. You had some technical issues with it, uh, but you got it. You loved it and you got it and you appreciated his effort. I feel the same way. I think this is a, a an amazing job that Romero did. I think, again dealing with some topics that were way above what you would think this, a film like this would be. So the question is, once again, we left the question, do those, do, do those technical film parts of the film take me out of it? And given the fact that I think it is such a home run on the paranormal score, and given the fact that you just made some really compelling arguments that have honestly made me kind of, not rethink it because I, I got those things as I was watching it, but the timeliness of it and some of the duct tape of it stop did you. take I'm gonna me stop out you right now. It, and I'm, and I realized that by my own logic, by Mr. Romero's own logic himself, movie can't make it on the, on the list because he wanted to remake it, which means he felt there were enough problems with it. He, in other words, I think he felt the same way we did about it. <laughs> I think he was like, I love this movie. This might be my best movie, but I want another shot at it. And I think that maybe even he would say, like, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't, I, it didn't connect. It didn't work, but noble attempt. I don't know if it belongs on the shelf ultimately. Um, you just let me off the hook. You let me off the hook. I'm going to, I'm going to keep it off the shelf for me. And I'm going to say full disclosure, 
if you want to know more about Richcraft, out of all the movies we talked about, watch this one. Yeah, and if and if you like George Romero and didn't know he made movies like this, check it out because it's it's really fun and interesting and worth it. But I'm gonna hide behind Romero himself and say I love you. I get what you're doing. It was a brilliant attempt, but I gotta leave it off. Can we say it's 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 balancing on the corner of our paranormal shelf. It's like it's it's just about to fall off. It's like in the back. You know what? When you're looking at our paranormal shelf of all the movies you're putting up there that have that have been rated P for paranormal, and they're on our shelf, and you put your drink down, you're putting it down on the DVD copy of this. It's 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 a well drink. All right, great. Uh, don't forget, everybody. Wish Tony well. Get to our social media. Congratulate him. His film is going to Sundance. It's screening at Sundance Film Festival. An incredible accomplishment. And don't forget, you've got a homework assignment. You have to watch or. Think about again Gremlins for our upcoming Christmas episode and start watching Evil on Netflix. And that'll be in an upcoming episode as well. Uh, Anthony, this was awesome. This was so much fun. I really did love this movie. I, I honestly did. I'm glad you did. I mean, I hadn't seen it in a while and I had a lot of like warm feelings about it because I love George Romero and, uh, and um, I'm happy. I think this is a the honorable place. I think it has a place of distinction, but it isn't on the shelf. Thank you, Tony. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Rated P for Paranormal. Please rate, review, and share. It really does make a difference. For more information, you can check out our main page. Just go to anchor.fm slash Rated Paranormal. Follow us on social media at Rated Paranormal. All music is by Andrew Galdens Jr. Give him a follow at Kid Riga on Instagram. That's at K-I-D-R-I-G-A. This podcast was created, produced, written, and edited by Maddie Blake and Anthony Arkin. Rated P for Paranormal is powered by Anchor. Are there butt trumpets? Why are you asking me that? Yeah. <laughs>